Hello, everyone. My name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. I'm so thrilled at the podcast we have for you today with Dr. Joe Tata. He's going to be talking about how to heal your pain now. He has a new book out. It's a number one bestseller, and he has so many answers for all of you guys that are in pain. And I suffered from pain for many, many years, and today I have it under control. But that's because I spent tens of thousands of dollars and went to chiropractors and doctors and decompression and pain medication and yoga and all different kinds of therapies and physical therapy, Pilates and uh, electro stim and all different kinds of things. I ultimately healed my pain with some simple exercises and Nest Health Bioenergetics. That's my bioenergetic program to help release the emotional trauma that I felt was related, uh, ultimately related to my lower back pain. But we're going to talk about all the different solutions uh, that Joe has to offer. We'll be talking about the emotional aspect of pain, stress, diet, nutritional supplementation, uh, some of the, uh, you know, cons of the traditional mainstream model that you'll find when you go to your doctor and the, the, the choices and options you'll be offered there. A lot of really interesting things we talk about today on the podcast. But before we do that, I have to do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we suggest today on the show. Please run out and grab my new book on Amazon called Limitless Energy, How to Detox Toxic Metals to End Exhaustion and Chronic Fatigue. I know a lot of you guys are exhausted and you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I know so many of you listening are seeking answers and you're taking care of yourself and you're trying to eat better and you're trying to sleep more and trying to get out there and move your body and exercise, but still may not be feeling your best even though you're doing all this work. And I found myself in the same situation many years ago where I felt like for everything that I'm doing, I should be feeling better. And in many years of research and seeking my own answers, I discovered detoxification and found that it helped me tremendously and it helped me to relieve a lot of my symptoms like brain fog and fatigue and emotional issues and other things that that I was dealing with that I wanted to resolve. So a lot of answers in my book in uh, called Limitless Energy, so you can get it on Amazon. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. I'm very, very happy. It's my baby. So I'd love for you to check it out and read it. Our guest today, Dr. Joe Tata, is a doctor of physical therapy. He's a board-certified nutrition specialist and functional medicine practitioner who specializes in treating persistent pain and lifestyle-related musculoskeletal, metabolic, and autoimmune health issues. His mission is to create a new paradigm around treating persistent pain and reverse our global pain epidemic. He's a creator of the Healing Pain Online Summit and the host of the Healing Pain Podcast, designed to broaden the conversation around natural strategies towards solving persistent pain. Dr. Tata is the author of the best-selling book, Heal Your Pain Now, a revolutionary program to reset your brain and body for a pain-free life by Decapo Press. He is currently in private practice and also provides online health consulting to help people achieve a pain-free life free from chronic disease. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, Wendy, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do what you're doing today? 
Sure. I'm, my basic background is I have a clinical doctorate in physical therapy. I've also studied nutrition and functional medicine. Uh, but my, my ultimate background is I got started um, or inspired, I should say, treating people uh, with chronic pain by watching my mom go through a chronic pain episode when I was when I was younger. Uh, my mom was an oncology nurse and she worked the night shift. And during the day, she did everything that moms do. She would, you know, take care of the house and the kids and the dog and be the super mom. And at night, she would go to the hospital and she'd, you know, help kids who were, you know, terminal, dying of cancer. And she did that for a couple of years. And like many people in healthcare, it's a high level of burnout. And she wound up with digestive issues, um, chronic back pain, chronic neck pain. She bounced back and forth between anxiety and depression. So a lot of the same symptoms that those with chronic pain struggle with. But the interesting thing was I watched her heal herself 100% naturally. So without medication, without drugs, without any kind of typical intervention that one would get through the, the medical system. And from that, it, I think it just kind of planted a seed in me that, wow, someone can really heal themselves naturally. And then the other thing is I used to be a competitive gymnast when I was a kid. So I've had my own bumps and bruises and aches and sprains. And, you know, going into physical therapy and helping people with chronic pain was kind of a natural progression for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk, we're talking about pain um, on this show today. And it's something a lot of people suffer from. And so even myself, I've spent years working with physical therapists and doing all kinds of things from bulging disc in my S1. And I finally have it under control, which I'm very thankful for. But I had a big, very, very expensive learning curve. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you wrote your book, Heal Your Pain, to shorten that learning curve for so many people suffering from pain. So what exactly is pain and why is it not what we think it is or represents? Yeah, it's a great place to start when we talk about chronic pain. So ultimately, pain is about protection. So it, it's your body or more specifically, it's your brain's way of alerting you to a danger. Now with, with acute pain, we understand that and it makes perfect sense. So acute pain is when you fall and you scrape your knee or you sprain your ankle, or you fall and you break a wrist, that's acute pain. There's actual tissue that's been damaged, tissue that's been broken, or torn, or ripped, or whatever the type of injury you have. There's a natural healing process that happens with acute pain, it's called the inflammatory process, and inflammation is actually good, it helps you heal and repair tissue. The inflammatory process is predictable, it takes usually between, anywhere between two weeks to three months. And when that is healed, your pain should go away. Chronic pain is pain that continues beyond the normal time of tissue healing. So if you have that broken arm or that sprained ankle and your pain uh, persists beyond that three-month period of time, it becomes chronic. The other really interesting thing about chronic pain is that chronic pain can happen from an injury that happened a long time ago or it can happen with no injury at all. So there could be no injury associated, let's say, with your back or your neck or your shoulder. But for some reason, your brain is creating this harm alarm, is creating this signal to alert you about a danger that's actual, that's either real or potential. So there's a lot of information in that um, kind of introduction there. And we can piece to that in the, um, in the podcast. But there, the take home message is there's a, a distinct difference between acute pain and chronic pain. And then they obviously will have different approaches that you talk about in your book. So you wrote, you wrote a book called Heal Your Pain. Can you talk about that? Sure. My book is called Heal Your Pain Now, and it talks about integrative, natural approaches to heal your pain. So over the past 50 to 100 years, we've created a, a, a 
very strong biomedical model around pain. So what that biomedical model means is when it comes to pain, we treat it with medication, surgery, or injections first and foremost. And when you have acute pain, those things can be really important. With chronic pain, we know that those interventions don't work because really chronic pain is more about the brain and nervous system and less about the actual tissue. That's why when we look at, for instance, the amount of uh, spinal surgery we do in this country, we do about 800,000 spinal surgeries in the, in the US every year. And within one to five years, most people have a reoccurrence of their pain. When we look at the amount of epidural injections that we give for let's say things like herniated discs or, or pinched nerves, um, these are all diagnoses that are given to people. Oftentimes, it doesn't work. And aren't, so aren't really, you more vulnerable to injuring it? Like if you can't feel it, you get an epidural. You're, my concern with that, and I actually had one of those. I had a an, an epidural, but I was really concerned about further injuring it because I can't feel it. Well, it, it's an interesting point. So pain really serves a – it's there to serve a function. So it's there to let you know there's something something wrong, basically. Now, what the wrong is is what – you know, clinicians like me try to figure out. So as we move away from that biomedical model and we move toward what's called a biopsychosocial model, so within that biopsychosocial model, in the bio, there could be something wrong, let's say, with the joint or with the tissue. But oftentimes there are also confounding psychosocial variables that contribute to your pain response. So let's say, you know, let's say you have the MRI and it shows that you have a disc herniation you may have a disc herniation and it actually exists, but what is your psychological and what is your um, social, the social ramifications that have happened from your injury? So your specific psychology may, may be that, okay, I appraise that herniation as a major, major threat to my life. And when you appraise it as a th threat or you give it that kind of sticker that there's a big threat in my back, it causes your pain to get worse as far as the intensity as well as the duration. And what's interesting about that is we know when we look at MRI studies from hundreds and thousands of people, most people have things like disc herniations in their back, but they actually have no pain. So why does one person have pain and the other person not have pain? It really goes back to their psychology because pain ultimately is about psychology. Yeah, that's really interesting you said that because I went through a period of time, like a lot of people in chronic pain, why is this happening to me? I hate this happen. I can't work out. I can't live the life that I want. And I can't lose weight. And, and it just gets get this horrible tape loop going in our head. And I decided to shift that and say, this is just temporary. I love myself and the healing sending. I would visualize sending healing messages to that area. And I don't, I don't have pain anymore. But I did a bioenergetic program that helps release emotional trauma also. So I think that had a lot to do with it also. But it's, it was a, there was definitely an emotional component to my pain. Yeah, so pain, the definition of pain is that it's both a sensory and an emotional experience. So the sensory is what you're feeling in your body. It's the tight tissue. It's the tension you have. It's um, the swelling that you may have there. That's all sensory. The emotional component is that how you appraise what, what happens in your life because of pain. And the emotional part is really interesting. People usually wind up with fear from pain or they wind up with a little bit of anxiety from pain or they wind up with depression from pain. So those three emotions can actually make your pain worse. So it's, it's almost impossible to heal chronic pain without actually talking about or helping people to kind of repraise their, their emotions and what's going on in their life. Well, you know what I have? When I feel pain, I go into a rage. 
like, I don't know why. I'm like, ah, I get really mad. I just, I'm not a fan of pain. <laughs> it makes me very angry. Um, yeah, so- it's totally normal. I mean, most, <laughs> no one, no one's really a fan of pain. Um, maybe a physical therapist, they like to kind of figure pain out. Um, but no one's a fan of pain. But going back to what you said before, you mentioned some statements. And those statements were more negative. And we know that when you have negative thoughts, they obviously lead to more negative thoughts. It's a psychological term called pain catastrophizing. And it basically means that I'm thinking of the worst case scenario. Oftentimes people ruminate or they constantly think about the worst case scenario or they magnify the worst case scenario, meaning that um, this pain is going to destroy my entire life when in fact you might have pain and obviously it's significant. But it's not going to destroy every single thing in your life. It may just obviously slow you down today from, let's say, going to the gym or maybe even going uh, to work today. But changing what you mentioned before is so key. Changing those negative thoughts to ones that are more positive or more adaptive can decrease your pain. And sometimes it can actually just get rid of your pain altogether. Yeah, I, I really resonate with that because I, I really feel like that's what happened to me. And while I know I still have it there, like the S1 bulging disc, and it's still there, and I feel it sometimes, but I'm not limited by it. And I don't allow myself to be limited by it. That's right. And what's interesting is when people come to me and they say, oh, you're a physical therapist, and I say yes. And there, at some point, there is exercise as part of the program, but a lot of times in the beginning, it's talking about, okay, what are your the automatic thoughts that you're having that you may not realize are happening. And how is that? how are those automatic thoughts linked to your emotions? And how do those emotions affect your physical body? Because every emotion that you have, there's a physical response to it. Just like when you get embarrassed, your, your cheeks turn red, or you get nervous and you sweat. When you have emotions like rage, let's say, you mentioned anger before, muscles naturally tense and tighten. There are changes in the sympathetic nervous system, which cause blood pressure to change and cause nerves to fire differently and cause digestion to slow down. Um, so, you know, we look at people who have digestive issues. They also have pain problems. Oftentimes they're in that sympathetic state. And really it's looking at the entire person, both their body as well as their brain and their mind and their thoughts to try to ease their pain. And so let's talk about stress. So stress is a big part of a lot of people's life today. Uh, people are overcommitted and not taking enough time for themselves. So what's the connection between stress and pain? Stress and pain are intimately connected. They're pretty much one and the same. And ultimately, all of us are going to have stress in our life. And at some point, we're probably going to have pain in our life too because there's no guarantee that we're going to live this anesthetized life. The truth is there are pain pain points that come up in your life. Some of those pains are physical, some are emotional. Oftentimes they're interconnected and they interweave. But ultimately it's how you appraise that that stressful situation. So I, I use the mnemonic um, TLC and it doesn't stand for tender love and care. It stands for when you have a stressful situation, do you see it as a threat? Do you see it as a loss? Or do you see it as a challenge? So that's the TLC, threat, loss, or challenge. So the threat, let's say if you have pain or, or stress, they're really one and the same. Um, the threat is, okay, this knee pain is going to prevent me from exercising and I'm going to put weight back on. So that, that's a threat, let's say. The loss could be, well, if I have pain, I'm going to lose my relationships with my friends since all of my activities revolve around going out to dinner and and shows and, and being physical let's say so that's the loss component to it 
And then the challenge component to it is really what we want people to do is to look at things as a challenge and say, okay, I have pain right now. I have the stressor in my life. What are the tools that I have inside of me that I naturally have to help me overcome those stressors? Or what can I lean on externally, friends, family, colleagues, professionals to help me get through this? So when you stop to, when you, and all of us go through those naturally, we all see things as threat, loss, and challenges. They're just in different degrees. And if you see things more as a challenge, it really reframes how you look at stress and then you can kind of approach stress or you can tackle stress in a very different way. Now with the stress response, many of the things that happen in your body are the same with pain. You get muscle tension and tightness. There are blood pressure changes. There are changes in hormones, meaning your stress hormones like cortisol and, and epinephrine increase. Um, there are changes that happen in the brain and nervous system, both um, the central nervous system, obviously your brain, as well as the nerves in your arms and legs. There are immune cell changes that happen, so your immune system weakens when you have stress and pain. So stress and pain are, are kind of like twisted sisters. They, they occur together often, and talking about one, you oftentimes treat the other. Another stressor people can have is where they just don't want to move, you know, and that's a big stress reliever for a lot of people. And I had definitely been in that state when I injured my lower back. I couldn't work out my upper body or my lower body. And so I kind of became immobile for a little while. And then I made myself do whatever I could do. If it's just lifting some arm weights or walking for 10 minutes, I'm like I've got to keep moving. And a lot of people become sedentary and then it can worsen their condition ultimately because they become more weakened. So why is it especially important for those with chronic or persistent pain to keep moving? Yeah, it's a great point. One of the really interesting psychological fact, facts about pain is that it causes fear. And one of the things it causes is fear of movement. We call them fear avoidance behaviors. So I don't move because I'm scared I'm going to hurt myself. And one of the first principles we teach people with chronic pain is that hurt doesn't equal harm. That you can actually have a little bit of soreness and still be safe. And the reason why that is is because when you start to realize that pain isn't coming from your joints, so the pain isn't actually coming from your back, the pain isn't actually coming from your knee, that it's actually produced in your brain, when you really understand that and it really changes your beliefs about pain, then you say, okay, then I can probably have a little bit of soreness and I'm not worried that I'm hurting myself. It's really interesting because I, 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 uh, I have friends, um, they're, they're a married couple and one has neck pain and the other has knee pain. And we, I was on a hike with them this weekend and she's walking and we're hiking and she's like, oh, ooh, my knee's a little bit sore. Maybe I should stop. And he said, you know, just keep going a little bit further. You'll be okay. Maybe it'll go away in about another half a mile. And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. And she said, well, what about your pain? And he's like, yeah, I have it here, but, you know, I'm not really paying attention to it. And there's a lesson in that story on one, how, how those two people, they both have pain, but one doesn't see it as a threat. And the other one sees it as something that's really, really scary. And it's normal. Pain is a scary thing. But when you realize that chronic pain doesn't mean that you're damaging yourself, doesn't mean you're damaging your disc further, doesn't mean you're damaging the joint further, then you say, okay, let me start a little bit of exercise and see how I feel. And what you want to do as far as exercise is concerned is do an activity. It could be anything, really. It could be a walking program. It could be a gentle yoga class. It could be strength training. We really don't have a lot of good evidence on the benefit of one exercise over the other. 
It's really what are you going to do probably a couple times a week, let's say three to four times a week, that you can do that's challenging but doesn't actually flare your pain up. And I tell people like you can have a little bit of soreness. So what you can do is you can kind of flirt with that pain a little bit. You can kind of like brush up against the pain as you're moving and you don't have to be concerned about it, but you shouldn't exercise. And then when you're done, feel like, oh my God, my pain is now a 10 out of 10 and it stays there for the next 48 hours. That's obviously too much. And I think a lot of people can be limited, say if they were used to doing really high impact exercise before <laughs> and now they're more limited, you kind of have to just change your thinking and do the low impact exercises. It might not be like the HIIT training or this super effective body toning kind of exercise you might have been used to. but. It's like you should just do what you can, maybe work around your injury and just get that workout in however you can so you can retain your fitness. That's right. The the One of the challenges, but people think they have to be 100% pain-free. And then once their pain is gone, they go right back to the, let's say, high-intensity interval training they were doing before. When in reality, the right way to do it is to start exercising again with just a little, tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of soreness or pain but start on a, slow, on, a, on a low level. And slowly, every two to three days, you build that up. And I always say slow and steady wins the race. So week after week or month after month, depending on how, how bad your pain is, you'll work back up to that level where you have no, no pain again. And what are some of the major barriers people have when recovering from their chronic pain? I know a lot of people can um, I, I started this myself. I have I'd have a lot of setbacks or like re-injure myself and do a lot of stuff where it would it was very frustrating. Uh, my recovering very long. So, what are some of the barriers that people can have in recovering? You know, I think the biggest barrier is really finding someone who really understands the latest science around pain. And I talk about that in, in my book, Heal Your Pain Now. And once you really understand what's going on both in the brain as well as the body, then you can create a program for someone, oftentimes, people with chronic pain, there are many, many different factors going on. There are nutritional factors, there are factors related to movement or sedentary behaviors, and then there are the psychological factors we spoke about before. So finding the right practitioner that really can evaluate you and treat you on all those levels is probably the biggest barrier. The second barrier, I would say, is really finding someone that you trust and that you can develop that what's called a therapeutic relationship or the therapeutic rapport because you're going to have to work with that person closely probably for a couple of weeks or, or a couple of months. So finding someone who you really like and trust who can take you through that process. And, and last but not least, pain is this invisible disease. You can't see pain. So oftentimes personal relationships become difficult and it becomes a struggle because someone can't feel what you're feeling. They can't see your pain. So they don't believe you or they push you when you shouldn't be pushed or even times there are people that enable you when really they need to encourage you to, to do activity or do other changes like diet and nutrition. So those are probably the biggest barriers that exist for, for those with pain. I, I think ultimately we can't talk about this topic without you know talking about if you have chronic pain, you're probably going to wind up in a physician's office and physicians first treat people with um, prescription medication. And we now have an opioid epidemic in our country where we have about two to three million people who take an opioid. We lose about, you know, 20 to 30,000 people each year from opioid related deaths. So realize that, you know, you have an option. You have an option to say, no, thank you. I don't want the prescription medication. Can you please refer me to a practitioner 
who can help with natural ways to heal pain. So that's probably, you know, the icing on the cake for me is really the last one because so many times people wind up seeing anywhere between five to 10 different types of, let's say, physicians before they can find someone who can help them with natural solutions. Yes, and and I think for me, I went right to the physical therapist when I had pain, um, but I know a lot of people just go to their doctor and, you know, I think people have to realize the physician is not going to address the underlying root causes of the pain. It's just out of their scope of practice and they'll give you a it, pill, you know. Yeah, it's true. When I did research for my book, I discovered a, a really wonderful uh, research article that said that the average physician only receives nine hours of pain science education at, in their in their university training. So what that means is most of the training that they have revolves around what medication to prescribe or what surgery to to do. Yeah, and then surgery to me seems like a last resort, and and it seems like it'll be an easy fix. You know, you get the surgery, then you're all good. But I think the reality is a lot of people find that uh, they can it can be worse if the doctor cuts a nerve or creates some sort of permanent damage in that joint or what have you. And a lot of the back surgeries are not successful. And so I, I really beg people to think of surgery as a very, very, very last resort. But if you go to an orthopedic surgeon. That's what they do. They do surgery. So yeah. we're going to tell you to do surgery, you know? It's true. And let's not forget that surgery is a planned trauma. Yes. So even though even though you elect to do it and even though it's planned, it's still a trauma to the body. So you have a trauma on top of already existing traumas. And many people with chronic pain have traumas from early childhood. And those traumas are related to physical abuse or they're related to sexual emotional abuse or there's a more a more recent trauma. I'm working with someone right now. Um, I just worked with her today who um, found out that her husband was having an affair. And it's been a major trauma and a major blow to her. And from that, she has developed chronic pain from it. So she didn't have an actual physical injury, but she had a major threat in her life. It's, it was a major emotional trauma that has manifested itself as pain in her body. And if she went the typical orthopedic route, they would definitely find something on an X-ray. They would definitely find something on an MRI. But that's not the root cause of her pain. The root cause of her pain is the emotional link that her and I are working through. And as she works through it, her pain starts to release and her stress level goes down. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. I work with a lot of clients, too, that have pain and have my various you know tricks in my tool bag that I use to help them release those emotional traumas. And it helps tremendously. Yeah, it uh, with, does. With relieving their pain. And so uh, let's talk about some of the biggest myths about pain uh, that we've been led to believe. Yeah, and the biggest myth is you need medication to cure pain. And whether it's prescription medication like an opioid or over-the-counter medication such as non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, obviously we know that opioids have a, a number of dangers to them. They're obviously addictive. Um, they cause dependency and they also cause another uh, other changes in your body like hormonal issues and problems in your gut Same thing with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. There's there was a big study that just came out recently on how within eight days After taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, they're linking it to heart attacks and strokes And we saw this like 10 or 15 years ago with the prescription medication called Vioxx, which is a very strong uh, prescription non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but now we're seeing the same information with the medications that are just prescribed uh, or sold, I should say. They're not prescribed. You can buy them in 
any over-the-counter um, drugstore. So one is the medication. You don't need medication to heal from pain. Two, imaging studies. That an imaging study will tell me the cause of my pain. And we know that imaging studies are very poorly correlated with pain, especially when we look at spinal pain. You can have an MRI, you can have an MRI with a herniated disc and have absolutely no pain at all. And then last but not least is that chronic pain is not curable. It's something that has to be managed. And just that thought in a patient's brain that I'm going to have to manage this thing for the rest of my life is enough to cause fear and anxiety and depression. And I always tell people that you can live a life that's pain-free. You just have to start implementing a couple of simple, easy strategies to turn it around. Yeah, and like you can eat an inflammatory diet and expect some miracle to happen with your inflammation, which causes pain, you know? Um, no, you, it, it's so true. I mean, I, I have people come to me and they, they hear me talk on podcasts like this and they, you know, like, okay, it must be related to my stress. So we work on their stress and emotions and we get through that part. And then I say, okay, how are you feeling now? And they say, well, it went down a little bit, but it's still there. And I said, okay, that's because now we need to work on inflammation. Now, with chronic pain, there's neurogenic inflammation that happens in the nervous system. But if you're overweight or obese, if you have metabolic syndrome, if you have an autoimmune disease, there is still underlying inflammatory processes that are going on at the same time these other changes are happening. So it's very important to talk about nutrition. Yeah, and I mean, if you're drinking alcohol every night, which turns into sugar in your body, or you're eating lots of refined grains, which turns into sugar in your body, or industrial seed oils like canola and corn and uh, grapeseed oils and soybean oils and things like that, guess what? You're pouring fuel on the fire and causing yourself more pain, whether you want to admit that to yourself or are aware of it or not. You know, you can mm -hmm. eat sugar and, and you know, sugar all day and alcohol and refined grains and expect to get out of pain, you know. so No, it's true. I mean, especially when you talk about sugar, I mean, look at the, the diseases of, of blood sugar dysregulation, obviously prediabetes and diabetes. The diabetic population has higher incidences of joint pain, of autoimmune disease, of diabetic neuropathy, which is obviously inflammation of your nervous system of things like um, plantar fasciitis and Dupuytren contractions, which are things that happen in your hand. And obviously, let's not forget about the biggest inflammation, which is cardiovascular disease. So sugar is directly related to inflammation in, in your body. And by taking sugar out of your diet, you can decrease that inflammation and you'll decrease your pain. Yeah. And so let's also um, talk about maybe like what's the best diet uh, to reduce pain. Like I'm assuming it's an anti-inflammatory type diet. Yeah. If if a patient comes to me and they have not tried any type of nutritional intervention, then I first try to obviously meet them where they are and try to get them on a 100% whole foods diet. So a whole food Mediterranean-based diet. Well, obviously there's no chemicals, there's no additives, there's nothing that's preserved, there's nothing that's been ripped of its natural vitamins, minerals, and, and phytonutrients. Oh, and so no fast people, food? <laughs> <laughs> if you can cook it fast in your home, <laughs> That may be okay, but not not something that you drive to a window. That's not inflammatory um, at all. It's extremely inflammatory. A lot of people do really well with a whole foods diet. They'll see changes in a lot of their inflammatory markers. They'll see weight loss. They'll start to see a decrease in pain. The challenge becomes, I think, when we start to talk about the, the autoimmune crowd, which is probably about out of the 100 million Americans that struggle with chronic pain, probably about half of them have a diagnosed or an underlying 
autoimmune condition. And with those patients, you need to go deeper into the nutritional strategies. A whole foods diet is just not going to fix that. You're going to have to take out certain foods that are inflammatory. And of course, put in foods that are anti-inflammatory to decrease the inflammation. Yes. And, and so what are some of your nutritional strategies for healing pain and inflammation? Do you do like food sensitivities testing? Because we know that can cause inflammation in people. Yeah. I mean, the three top foods that I recommend people take out are gluten, dairy, and sugar. And if you just start with those three foods, I'm really, really happy. So gluten, dairy, and sugar for 30 to 60 days. Sometimes people see a dramatic effect within a week. Sometimes they need that 30 to 60 day period to really um, decrease that inflammation in their body and to heal their gut. But those are the first three foods, gluten, dairy, and sugar. After that, then I would move them toward a basic paleo diet. And then eventually, if they need, toward a paleo autoimmune. And now some people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's all I eat. It's like gluten, dairy, and sugar, <laughs> dairy and sugar for a lot of people. But, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, so it can be good to just maybe start with one thing. And, you know, I, I think once people see the results with doing that, it seems overwhelming at first because they have to radically change their diet, God forbid, eat more vegetables. But, you know, they start seeing radical changes in how they feel. You start getting addicted to how much better you feel. And it's like you, I, for me, I eventually associate that with pleasure rather than that pain in my stomach hurting and feeling nauseated and brain fog, then you start making those connections and it's not as difficult to start moving towards a healthier diet, making those better changes or choices yeah, for yourself. It's so true. I think the, the pleasure pain connection is, is so important. And food oftentimes can be very soothing to us, especially food that has certain things in it like sugar or, or processed foods. I have a, a patient who texted me a couple of days ago and she said, you know, I've been on your diet for a month now. I've been feeling great. And I made my kids pancakes over the weekend. And I had a couple of pancakes with them. And now I feel like crap. And I said, oh, what do you feel? I'm bloated. Um, I have pain in my, in my fingers and my knees. And I feel like I needed a nap like two hours later. So I said, okay. I said, so what do you think of all that? She said, well, I don't want to go near this ever again. I had no idea. Like I thought I would, you know, see like a major rash break out. Like sometimes it takes a while for people to become present with their own symptoms and to relate it to the foods they eat. But once you realize that there are foods that harm you and then foods that help you, that you start to change your habits really fast. Yeah, and you're not going to know that until you remove the foods for 30 to 60 days and then try them again. Then your immune system flips out when you eat gluten or dairy again and you have a much stronger reaction than you did yeah. initially because you were kind of like used to like like a garbage disposal. You're just kind of like used to all this garbage in your body and it gets kind of used to dealing with that all the time. You don't have as, you know, you don't feel it so much. But yeah. Um, I yeah. And if you have to, don't make your kids, you know, don't make your kids pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make your kids gluten-free pancakes and you'll be fine. Yeah, get them started early eating healthy. Yeah. Easier said yeah. than done. Um, so let's talk about um, opiates again because the easy go-to for so many people and what they're given when they go to the doctor is opiates. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that because that's a lot of people listening that are in pain or taking opioid pain medication. And it's getting harder and harder to get that. A lot of doctors, even after you have a surgery, um, can be very, very, you know, strict with giving opioid pain medications. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think a lot of people don't realize one of the big problems with them is that they use up all the glutathione in your liver so you're not able to detox as well. 
And in taking those medications, your body builds up talk more and more and more toxins, and it's not able to process those, which in and of itself makes you sicker and sicker in the long run, like if you're taking them for years. And I think it's really important to take glutathione if you are taking those to try to protect your liver. Can you talk a little bit about liver issues with taking opioid medications? Yeah, what, what people don't realize is that opioids can be addictive after just one dose. And the reason why that is, is because there are different SNPs, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms that we all have. And if you have a certain SNP for the way that drug is processed or detoxified and it's lacking, then that drug stays in your system and it becomes very addictive, basically. You, you don't, your body doesn't get rid of it. Um, that's the biggest thing that really surprises me. Now, I'm not anti-opioid at all. It has their place. Obviously, if you had a major surgery or you had a major trauma or you're trying to get through this painful period and you have the other integrated strategies um, in your life that are supporting you, then you can start with the lowest dose for the shortest period of time and then you can eventually wean off it. The challenge is for some people, it become, it become very difficult to wean off them once they're on them because there are genetic differences. And especially women, some women have um, this genetic difference in their ability to process a drug and your liver is what processes the drug. The other thing is that opioids also affect your gut. They decrease your gut motility, meaning the food doesn't move through your digestive tract as fast. And when that happens, you get changes in the microbiome. And that in and of itself can cause a, another type of inflammatory response in your body. And then going back to the liver, opioid, opioids affect your ability to produce bile in the gallbladder. Now, the bile in the gallbladder is what gets um, injected into your intestine to break down fat. When you don't break down fat, especially, obviously, we need some, some of the fats are very, very important for inflammation, like the omega-3 fatty acids, then you're not getting the healthy fats into your body, into your gut, to balance out that omega-3, omega-6 ratio. So it's not just, and then there's the addiction part, which, you know, we know is there. We still have yet to really give this to people and say, look, take this for just a short period of time because it can be very addictive. So those are the major points that I talk to patients about and I talk about um, when I talk to, you know, speaking in public or on podcasts about opioids. Yeah, and I, I agree. They totally have their place. And if you're having severe pain, I mean, you can just be a, a nervous wreck. I mean, where I had periods where I was just shaking. I just couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And I had to take opioid pain medication. Um, but mm -hmm. even Tylenol, even these over-the-counter medications are even not available in other countries because thousands of people, I think it's like 17,000 people die every year from taking acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Um, yeah. So they're not, you know, they're, don't, I don't want people to think those are safe either. You know, they all have their price. It's true. I mean, when you look at the, the, the bottle and you see the dose, I really tell people, cut that in half. If you have to take something, look at the dose first and cut it in half. Because oftentimes, the other thing is if you're overweight, a lot of times these drugs get stuck in your, your fat cells and your adipose tissue, and they stay in there for a long period of time. And most of the patients who are chronic pain patients have a problem with weight. And again, these drugs are in their system, and they're not being detoxified properly. Um, they're definitely not put on any, any kind of therapeutic detoxification program to help accelerate detoxification. So it becomes a real challenge for them. Yeah. And so let's also talk about cortisone shots. That's something a lot of people get. And I wanted to kind of, you know, 
make let people like think twice maybe about getting those i mean i've had them before and they're great they just you know snap you out of the pain or you can heal really quickly supposedly um so what are some of the problems with getting cortisone shots that they're getting from their doctors so you really should you know if you have to have a cortisone shot you shouldn't really have any more than two in a one-year period of time um, obviously you're injecting glucocorticoids or cortisone into your system on top of the already natural cortisone or cortisol you have that your adrenal gland produces, so you could throw your adrenals off. The other thing is that when you inject it into a joint, it can degenerate some of the cartilage or the and or the tendon and ligament that's in that joint, basically. And that's, you see this in athletes. There'll be athletes or, or professional dancers that have had these multiple times in their career, and oftentimes where the, the joint or the area where they had it is has early arthritis, because that cortisone basically wore down the tissue. Um, in, the, in the proper amount, cortisol or cortisone can be very anti-inflammatory, but if you have too much, it can be very actually pro-inflammatory and can cause problems. So um, the other thing is that with so many of these, these interventions, whether it's um, a cortisone injection or a surgery, you just have a practitioner who's relying on that scan and they're not looking at the whole person. So, to be honest, with a lot of the studies that look at cortisone, one of the reasons why it works is because the person believes in it, and it's a placebo effect, mm. which when we look at everything in the whole pain science space, in the pain science realm, the reason why most things work is because the patient really believes in it. Yeah, a lot of, so a lot of I, <laughs> exactly, a lot of things work by placebo. Yeah, it's the power of the, of the mind, and it's the power of belief. So I say, if you know that and you're a patient, that's that's it's wonderful. You should know that and empower yourself with that and then say, OK, let me apply that to the natural strategies. Let me believe in, let's say, the diet. Let me believe in the stress reduction principles like my um, mindfulness based stress reduction. Or let me believe in healthy movement that if I move a little bit more, I'll have less pain. And when that happens, um, it's a wonderful combination of you being able to leverage your own natural healing through your mind, along with obviously natural methods. And so what are some natural supplements that people can use to relieve pain? Because a lot of natural things and, you know, you know, like supplements and, you know, herbs and things that nature has provided for us can be just as effective as prescriptions and prescription pain medication. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of options. Um, first and foremost, I would look toward the omega-3 fatty acids. And somewhere between two to 5,000 milligrams a day is what can help decrease the inflammation in your body. The more inflammation you have, probably the higher dose you need, and probably for the longer period of time. We know when we look at a Paleolithic diet, the average um, caveman, if you will, probably had upwards of 10,000 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids in their diet. The average American probably has about 1,500 if they're lucky. So we know that shifting that omega-3 fatty acid um, in your body can help decrease inflammation. So that'd be the first thing. Second thing would be vitamin D. Tons and tons of good studies on vitamin D with migraine headaches, with spinal pain, low back pain, neck pain, with joint pain, with autoimmune disease. So I recommend anywhere between 2,000 to 5,000 IUs of vitamin D and see how it affects your levels. Proteolytic, proteolytic enzymes, which are enzymes that kind of chew up the inflammation in your bloodstream. So when you have that um, carbohydrate molecule and that protein molecule that comes together, that glycation, proteolytic enzymes will break that up. So those are, those are the, the four major ones. GABA, GABA aminobacteric acid, 
is also another great intervention, and that's very calming to the nervous system. For those that have chronic pain, oftentimes they have a, a, a imbalance in glutamate, so they have too much glutamate in their central nervous system and, and not enough GABA. So taking some GABA can um, offset that or, or rebalance it. So that's another one. Um, the other thing which is really fascinating is valerian root. And people look at valerian as, oh, it's going to put me to sleep. But if you take it in a really small dose, it's very calming to the nervous system. And when you calm your nervous system, oftentimes things like tension and tightness and pain will start to dissipate. Yeah, that's really interesting when you talk about GABA. And I think that's something that a lot of people use up during the day with stress. And they, uh-huh. I think a lot of people are deficient in GABA. And it's something I recommend a lot to my clients as well. I take it every day, at least to just conk out at the end of the day and go to sleep. <laughs> but I, I know like if people have really high glutamate levels, that their nervous system can be over firing, 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 and then that can cause the perception of pain. And GABA is that off switch that turns off these stimulating neurotransmitters and can stop that process. That, that's right. That's 100% right. And a lot of the the neurotransmitters that we look at with pain, there's a link to our gut with them. So GABA is one. Um, the other one is serotonin. Uh, most of the serotonin is made in, in your gut. And if you don't have enough serotonin, then oftentimes you can have problems with pain perception or pain sensitivity. So cleaning up the diet, healing your gut is another good way to to affect that. I think also there's a lot of people, I know myself, that I feel like genetically I don't make very many endorphins. And so those people can probably be more susceptible to pain or pain sensations because they just don't make enough endorphins, which turn off pain signals. Yeah, and I've had some success with with patients with that as far as um, using some 5-HTP with them. The only thing you have to be cautious with there is that if you're on any type of SSRI SSRI medication, um, you could run the risk of uh, obviously overdosing yourself. Um, so come off the SSRI first and then try the 5-HTP. That's, that would be my recommendation. Is there anything else we haven't discussed that you want to talk about that's in your book, Heal Your Pain Now? You know, we discussed a lot. I think the one thing we haven't really talked about, which I like to leave people with, is just the notion of, of compassion. Um, and that compassion is one for yourself is when you have chronic pain to treat yourself as you would as if your, your best friend was struggling because chronic pain can oftentimes take a while to heal and it needs a number of different strategies. So have compassion for yourself and have compassion for the process. And then also if you're a practitioner, realize that people with chronic pain have struggled for oftentimes years. They've been through many practitioners. So being patient with them as well. And, And oftentimes it takes a couple of different things to really help them, even if you know that, wow, my last fibromyalgia patient really was cured through a, a gut healing protocol, but what's wrong with this one? She must be faking it, or she must be making it up, or she must be really overly sensitive. And the truth is um, that that's not true, is that we're all very different. Your pain is unique to you. Pain's like a puzzle. And it's just ma- a matter of finding someone to help you put the right pieces in place to heal your pain. Yeah, and if your practitioner says it's all in your head, run, run for the hills. <laughs> I mean, unless it's like you're talking about the emotional aspect of it, but there are people that go to practitioners and they're like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, you know, or there's right. nothing on the MRI or, or what have you. And so it, it there's no one <laughs> practitioner, I think, that's going to have the answers for everyone. And is there any kind of rule of thumb, like if you're not getting better in X amount of time, maybe you should look for someone using some alternative methods? 
You know, it's a, it's a great question that you ask. When I see a patient, I can usually help a patient in some way feel better within about a week to two weeks. I may not, I may not take their pain from a nine to a one, but I can definitely bump it down two to three points where they say, oh, okay, I see there's something happening here. And oftentimes the first intervention or the first education piece, oftentimes it's education we're talking about, is to get someone in that relaxed parasympathetic state. And you can do that really easily with just teaching them some deep breathing exercises, some belly breathing or some um, diaphragmatic breathing. If you would just do that with every single one of your chronic pain patients and do that, have them do it three times a day for one to two weeks, I can guarantee you they would notice some type of change, whether it's pain, whether it's their stress is less, whether it's they feel more calm, sleep better, um, digestion actually increases and gets better because things move when you're more relaxed. So just that one intervention um, can be really incredible. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I like to ask everyone this question. <laughs> it's chronic pain. We had, chronic pain out, outnumbers cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and HIV. So all of those diseases combined doesn't, don't, does not outnumber the amount of chronic pain we have. It exists in every single country, and every single country has a struggle with it on some level, whether it's diagnosing them, whether it's treating them with the proper treatment, or whether it's obviously you know, over-medicating them. But it really is, it really is chronic pain. To go beyond that, I think along with the, the chronic pain problem is we also have a, a mental health problem is we don't um, take people's problems seriously and we don't give people the psychological support they need to overcome these chronic diseases. That doesn't mean that someone necessarily has to go see a psychologist. It just means that we need to start treating people as people and to show them that compassion, to show them that kindness, um, sometimes to show them love that they may be missing in their life that you can kind of start for them. And that's really part of the healing process. And can you tell the listeners a little bit more about where they can find you and learn about like your work and your book or even work with you? Sure. You can find me on my website at www.drjoetata.com. So that's D-R-J-O-E-T-A-T-T-A.com. I have a great pain quiz. They can take my pain quiz. It's called thepainquiz.com. And you can find out the root cause of your pain, whether it's about nutrition, movement, or psychology. And then I also have an online program called Heal Your Pain, Heal Your Life, which you can find on my website. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a really important topic because I know so many of us, especially uh, the old lady over here and myself, <laughs> deal with like, <laughs> pain. Uh, and it's just really been a big focus for the last five years of my life is getting out of pain. And it can be a very long road, very expensive and very frustrating. So I really urge people to get Joe's book, Heal Your Pain Now, to help shorten that learning curve and just really start getting to the root cause of why you have pain so you can resolve it quicker. Great. It's been great being with you, Wendy. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about how we can heal chronic pain naturally. Yes. And everyone, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to live2110.com. You can check out my detox and healing program, mineralpower.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast. Mm -hmm.